One focus, one subject. Welcome to The Real Story, the podcast that brings together global experts to explain one issue shaping the news. BBC World Service podcasts are supported by advertising. This edition of NewsHour Extra was first broadcast at 9 GMT on Friday, the 6th of November. You're listening to the BBC World Service. This is NewsHour Extra with Owen Bennett-Jones. And this week, the Obama foreign policy record. It's been criticised from both left and right, but how much of that criticism is fair? And we must start with the promises. It is a yardstick against which judgment can be made. Remember that first Obama campaign? All around the world, hopes were high. As the Democratic nominee for the presidency in August 2008, the then-Senator Obama laid out his foreign policy aspirations to a jubilant crowd in Denver, Colorado. If John McCain wants to have a debate about who has the temperament and judgment to serve as the next commander-in-chief, that's a debate I'm ready to have. I will end this war in Iraq responsibly and finish the fight against al-Qaeda and the Taliban in Afghanistan. I will rebuild our military to meet future conflicts, but I will also renew the tough, direct diplomacy that can prevent Iran from obtaining nuclear weapons and curb Russian aggression. I will build new partnerships to defeat the threats of the 21st century, terrorism and nuclear proliferation, poverty and genocide, climate change and disease. And I will restore our moral standing so that America is once again that last best hope for all who are called to the cause of freedom, who long for lives of peace, and who yearn for a better future. Well, there we are, all the rhetoric and the promises. And uh, more recently, the man he mentioned at the beginning there, Senator John McCain, when discussing Obama's foreign policy, called him the most naive president in history. Uh, But at the time, many people were caught up in the enthusiasm And that was right around the world, not just in the States, where he got elected in France. These are amazing numbers. Uh, If you remember what happened, there was 91% confidence he would do the right thing in foreign affairs. In Kenya, 94% confidence. That was the opinion around the world. Let's uh, introduce the panel who will make judgments on how he did. Uh, Here in London, Robert Singh, Professor of Politics at Birkbeck College at the University of London and the author of a book, Barack Obama's Post-American Foreign Policy. And he's just finished a new one, actually, after Obama renewing American leadership. Gives you a hint of his views. Uh, We've got Jeremy Scahill, the founding editor of the news website The Intercept and the author of Dirty Wars, important book, also made into a film. In Washington, uh, the BBC's Kim Gattis, who covered the State Department and is the author of The Secretary, a journey with Hillary Clinton from Beirut to the heart of American power. And we also have Gideon Rose, editor of Foreign Affairs magazine and a former National Security Council official in the Clinton administration. So I want to ask you, first of all, I mean, sceptical journalists and academics though you are, how many of you got caught up in that enthusiasm and thought something different could happen? Gideon Rose. Well, I got a little caught up, but I don't think it's actually appropriate to use promises as the measure for how a president does. First, everybody promises more than they can deliver. And second, what they feel compelled to promise is what will get them elected, which is what's in the popular news at that particular time. It may not reflect what's most important. The real judgment should be how is the American uh, foreign policy agenda compared to when you took over? Uh, Have you basically dealt sensibly with the major threats that could 
could have been predicted, and how have you improvised to the things that couldn't have been predicted. And on those accounts, I think Obama has actually done much better than people say. Not perfect, but decently. American foreign policy is better off than it was. The world is better off than it was. We've pulled back a little bit, and the next uh, president will have a chance to take things forward. We will thrash that out over the next hour, believe me. But just, just let's just go back to 2008 and nine. How many of you did think things really were going to change? Kim Gattis, why don't you give us your view? Well, there was certainly a sense in Washington that there was a big contrast between uh, the approach that President Obama would bring to foreign policy and dealing with the world to that that had been adopted by his predecessor, George W. Bush. And President Obama thought that that was enough to effect change around the world. The mood in Washington was very giddy for all the supporters of Democrats. I remember at the State Department when Hillary Clinton walked in on her first day on the job, she was welcomed as a rock star, not just because she was Hillary Clinton, but because within that building, there was great relief that diplomacy was back at the forefront. And she said something which very clearly indicated how Democrats, how many people in the US and many people around the world felt, which was that the world was breathing a sigh of relief. There was that sense of of hope and anticipation. But as Gideon says, there is a difference between the promises you make on the campaign trail and what you can actually uh, deliver as president. But it is very refreshing, very interesting to hear those promises. And we can, throughout the program, go through some of them and see how he's he's fared. Yep. And Robert Singh, what's your opening view on this? I must admit, I'm afraid I'm a bit long in the tooth on this. And I offended my students even back in 2008 by being sceptical about Obama's prospects. I mean, mostly because I think Gideon's right. I mean, no one gets elected for the White House by saying, elect me, I'm not going to change very much. But on the other hand, the the stratospheric levels of promise that Obama reached were ridiculous. And and in a sense, I mean, he fueled his own partial downfall, if you believe he's had a partial downfall, by raising those expectations to the level where, you know, this is the moment when the oceans will cease to rise and the planet will begin to heal. Yes, I should say that those numbers I gave, the 91 and 94 percent, were a Pew Global poll at that time. And Jeremy Scahill, what's what's your uh, take on where you were back in 08, 09? First of all, the speeches that President Obama or any candidate is giving, um, it's all smoke and mirrors for the most part. And, you know, I mean, U.S. foreign policy has been very consistent from uh, Clinton all the way through Obama, through Democrats and Republicans. You know, it's been the American exceptionalism doctrine. If you look at President Obama's pledges, I'm going to end the Iraq war. I'm going to be smart in fighting terrorists. We're going to take the fight to the terrorists in Afghanistan. Uh, I'm going to shut down Guantanamo. I mean, it's been an epic failure where Obama's going to leave office and you're you're going to have ISIS in control of huge swaths of Iraq and Syria. The Middle East is far more destabilized than it was uh, when George W. Bush left office. And and the fact is that Obama has doubled down on some of the most egregious policies of the Bush era, uh, such as the assassination program through drones. I mean, I think if you look at the, the national security establishment that's not subjected to elections or Senate confirmation, uh, what you see is that American empire remains through Democrats and Republicans. This is Gideon. I agree with 
with Jeremy but disagree, which at the same time. Um, I think that it's true that there's a strong theme of continuity throughout American foreign policy over not just the last couple of administrations but the last 70 years. But that doesn't mean there also hasn't been variation in the actual practice and execution. And from the national security establishment's vantage point, what distinguished George W. Bush was not the goals that he pursued, was not the general uh, strategy that he followed, but the radical and incompetent tactics that he employed, the recklessness, the unwillingness to work with allies, the lack of prudence in the things that he engaged in. And so what we expected in the establishment uh, from Obama was a return to sort of sanity, prudence, calm, something more like George W. Bush's father, who still has a very strong positive reputation in American foreign policy circles. And I think to a certain extent, we got some of that. So he's prosecuted the war on terror, yes, and if you think the fundamentally uh, think that the war on terror is a mistake, then you're not going to like what he's done. But if you think that the Bush administration's problem was not fighting the war on terror, but fighting it stupidly and egregiously badly, then Obama's treatment of it may be somewhat more attractive. This is Jeremy. I just want to respond because yep. Gideon was, was responding to me. Um, you know, look, look at who Obama surrounded himself with when he started uh, choosing advisors and choosing people uh, to be his running Uh, Joe Biden, who was a supporter of the Iraq war, who refused when he was chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee to call any dissident voices on weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Hillary Clinton, who supported merciless sanctions against Iraq and promoted the myth that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction. I mean, it was a kettle of hawks that Obama surrounded himself with. And, And look, the fact is that we have a president now who speaks the English language with a far greater mastery than George Bush did. But other than that, and the sort of large-scale troop deployment that his closest advisors supported in Iraq, President Obama's outcome, the outcome of his foreign policy, has been a net equal to Bush's, which is leaving the world far less safe and giving ISIS and other terrorist groups uh, the opportunity to take territory and seize U.S. weapons to use in their pursuit of sort of domination of parts of the Middle East. King Gaddis, let me just ask you, as we go back to 0809, whether you think he had a clear idea, I mean, what, you know, there's a lot of discussion as to whether the phrase Obama doctrine is valid, whether there is such a thing. When he started out, did he have an idea, a consistent, coherent idea as to what he wanted to do in foreign policy? I think he wanted to redefine American power and he wanted to change the tone with which diplomacy was conducted and with which America engaged with allies and foes alike, because he made very clear from the beginning that he would reach out to countries like Iran and North Korea. And if he found that they unclenched their fists, then there would be engagement. He wanted to take America away from reckless expansionism, uh, unilateral military action, and as Gideon said, towards something more more sane, more thoughtful. The words smart power were bandied around a lot. And I do think that for the first four years of his term, and I take Jeremy's point that uh, neither Joe Biden nor uh, Hillary Clinton are exactly pacifists, but they did bring a more thoughtful approach to the conduct of American foreign policy. And President Obama surrounded himself with heavyweights, such as Hillary Clinton, such as Bob Gates, David Petraeus, Leon Panetta. And we can have a discussion about what we think in general of American power and whether we want America to be a global superpower or not, but that's a separate discussion. But in the Arab world, in Asia, 
in Europe. That was very welcome, the approach that President Obama took to have more engagement with allies, to rebuild those relationships that had been, you know, destroyed or or deeply damaged by the Bush administration. But I think what is interesting is to see how policy was conducted in those first four years and the contrast with the four years that followed in his second term, where he got rid of all the heavyweights and surrounded himself by people who can't really... you know, stand up to him in, in, in the ways that Bob Gates or Hillary Clinton would have done. And what you end up is with a very insular, very, very insular machine that is making this foreign policy right now. All right. Well, lots to discuss. And uh, I'm going to be difficult at the beginning by asking you, because you've all got your criticisms, but uh, there are alleged successes. So let's just sort of dispose of those in a few minutes before we get on to the Iraqs and the Syrias and the Afghanistans and so on. So these are things which he is credited with, and I want to know whether you think he should be. And there's Iran, of course, highly controversial, people on both sides of that, but that some people are saying that's a success, and there's also Cuba. So let's just hear him on those, starting off with December 2014 and Cuba. Today, the United States of America is changing its relationship with the people of Cuba. In the most significant changes in our policy in more than 50 years, we will begin to normalize relations between our two countries. Today, after two years of negotiations, the United States, together with our international partners, has achieved something that decades of animosity has not, a comprehensive long-term deal with Iran that will prevent it from obtaining a nuclear weapon. This deal demonstrates that American diplomacy can bring about real and meaningful change change that makes our country and the world safer and more secure. This deal is also in line with a tradition of American leadership. It's now more than 50 years since President Kennedy stood before the American people and said, let us never negotiate out of fear, but let us never fear to negotiate. Well, there we are, very much in line with his opening doctrine, if there was a doctrine of negotiation and multilateralism and all that sort of thing. Uh, Robert Singh, Cuba, a success? Partially. I mean, I think, uh, let's remember, relations haven't normalised. This is just diplomatic relations opening at the moment. So we're not there yet. And and it may well be a number of years before we get there if we do. And I think the other couple of things about this, one is you might argue it's emblematic of Obama's engagement approach, that what has Washington got back thus far for the opening? Um, There are a lot of us who would have argued it would have been made made much more sense to to get something back, in particular reform of the political system, progress on democratic rights and so forth. And the final element here also is that, important as it is for Latin America, symbolically in particular, this isn't a strategically significant gambit. The Iran one is, but the Cuba one isn't. Okay, Iran in a minute. Anyone else got a view on Cuba, success or not? Yeah, it is getting in here. I think that uh, you guys are underselling this. Both Iran and Cuba fall into the same category. Silly, long-standing feuds that American domestic politics prevented from being dealt with. And uh, what Obama did basically was say, let's try and resolve this. And he ended up in both cases, in the Cuba case, simply writing off the debt and saying, let's just have a new policy. And in the Iran case, getting together a coalition to have a sort of somewhat legitimate solid arms control deal. And what he has done in both cases is gotten the issue off the agenda, cleared the books on foreign policy and taken a distraction away from the next president. Those are solid wins. They're not giant home runs, but they're singles and doubles and they're solid wins. 
I would disagree with describing Iran as a, a, a silly uh, a leftover. Um, I think that Cuba was certainly an anachronistic. The, the Cuba policy was certainly very anachronistic. I do think it is a win. It's not necessarily strategic. It doesn't change the dynamic in the Western Hemisphere to, to a huge extent, but it was something that had to be done. And it was being held up by silly politics in the U.S. I remember asking Hillary Clinton uh, what she had to say about the fact that only Israel and Palau voted uh, with the U.S. against Cuba at the U.N., and she couldn't help but burst out laughing. But on Iran, I think... There is a history there between the two countries that is much heavier than anything the U.S. and Cuba have had to deal with. There is a history that is still weighing on the minds of many Americans. And there is Iranian activities in, in the region that are very problematic. So I think that while the gamble that President Obama has taken on trying to um, bet on the reformers in Iran and try to bring that country closer to the international community is one that is that is worth it, even though the success is still to be determined. The jury is still out on there. Yeah. Um, well, let me just put that to Jeremy Scahill. I mean, in your terms, Jeremy Scahill, hasn't he on that issue, Iran, resisted? The you know the non-elected national security establishment who you describe. Oh, absolutely, and I mean I I agree with many of the things, ironically, uh, that Gideon was saying about both Cuba and Iran. Um, but w- one caveat here: I think that Obama did the most that he could on the Iranian nuclear issue without having an outright sort of rebellion against him. I mean, already he's dealing with a totally obstructionist uh, Republican Congress. Uh, he's dealing with very hawkish uh, components of his own party on Iran. And I think he got the best deal he could have gotten. But to, to me, what the real issue on Iran is, is the fact that there are these proxy wars going on with the U.S., Russia, Iran, Hezbollah, that right now are certainly playing out in Syria, Iraq, and elsewhere in the Middle East but also increasingly on the African continent, that that almost never is discussed in the course of diplomacy. To to me, actually, Iran's spreading influence in places like Iraq and Syria is a is a far more serious issue than the nuclear issue. I mean, I, I think there's mm-hmm. a lot of propaganda uh, about Iran's nuclear program, and part of it is that the Iranians fan those flames themselves with their rhetoric. But the idea, if I may just sort of, interject, yeah. uh, Owen, I mean, the idea behind the nuclear deal is that in the long term, not only does it um, block Iran's pathway towards a nuclear bomb, but that it also helps the reformers benefit from the lifting of sanctions, they have elections coming up, that that might possibly help them uh, gain momentum in their efforts to bring change and reform to the country. And over the long term, that might also have an impact on Iran's foreign policy. It's a huge gamble. But having been to Iran this summer myself, I think it is one that uh, was worth taking. Okay, let me let me just put a question to Robert Singh, finally, on, on claimed successes. You will remember in London, under George W. Bush. To be an American in London was actually quite difficult. I mean, people were Absolutely. not saying they were American at parties and things because it was like everyone was so hostile to what America was saying. It was a very surprising thing. And now that's gone. I mean, it may not matter much, but is that an Obama success in a way? And it's, it's replicated, I'm sure, around the world. Well, I suppose if Americans want to be in the same category as Canadians and Belgians and that's not a problem in London, yeah, maybe. Um, but, but let's not get too, too over-egged on, on Obama's restoration of, of soft power. I, I think actually if you look to most Pew uh, and other surveys of Middle East opinion, most majority Muslim nations, um, Obama's actually become and the US has become more unpopular now than it was under George W. Bush. 
Now, that's quite remarkable. So the restoration of America's respect in the West, yeah, that's happened to a certain extent, but not really where it counts most. And the second aspect to that also is whether actually that soft power, that, that um, sort of liking of America really counts in material terms. OK, let's go back. 2009, because this is all relevant to what you're saying and you can come up with your judgments. You've been sort of previewing them. But uh, Cairo, 2009. I've come here to Cairo to seek a new beginning between the United States and Muslims around the world, one based on mutual interest and mutual respect, and one based upon the truth that America and Islam are not exclusive and need not be in competition. Right, it was a big speech. It made a huge impact, and many people say it's not been honoured. Kim Gattas, let me put it to you. Syria and Iraq, if America was still in there, it would be even worse. Just a, a word on the Cairo speech. He set expectations so high, there was only one way to go, and it was down. I think that in the first few years of President Obama's administration, there was more support for him in the Arab world. But I think it's important to remember that countries, and, and I speak as somebody who's, who's lived, who's grown up in, in Beirut, who's lived there most of my life, many countries, when they see a new president in the U.S. arriving, being elected, they feel that somehow, perhaps, for the first time, they're going to get a president who empathizes with them and takes their interest as a priority. And they seem to forget that America has its own national interest, its own national security priorities. And it's this mismatch that leads often to a lot of disappointments. I think that what uh, Robert was referring to when it comes to President Obama's popularity in Muslim and Arab countries now is because of what we're seeing in Syria. People feel very let down. In that first soundbite we heard from President Obama about America's moral standing, I speak to people in Beirut, I speak to Syrian friends today, and they say, where is America's moral standing? How can they let this happen in Syria? Obama's dismissed yeah. this as just someone else's civil war, but it is something that will weigh heavily on his legacy. Yeah, but I, I am going to ask you to address this question of, you know, what else could have been done? And and the fact is, it's, it is a highly complex situation in Syria, and it is not clear that American forces in Syria would make it any clearer. Gideon Rose. You guys are all being way too harsh. The fact is, there are some real problems and threats in the world. America's allies are essentially hors de combat, having given up world leadership and the ability or the desire to project power. And so the United States is forced not just to protect its own interests, but lead essentially the liberal order and defend it against threats. And, uh, you know, Jeremy is basically saying, well, the Bush administration was bad for going into the Middle East, and the Obama administration is bad for getting out of the Middle East. This is Jeremy. Just to respond, there is no way on earth that you could ever find record of me saying that that uh, the United States should be staying in the Middle East. First of all, it, just making it about Obama versus Bush, the fact of the matter is that the day Bush left office, the plan he had for Iraq was the one that Obama endorsed. And by allowing ISIS to take over so much military hardware, by allowing uh, the sort of botching of the Arab Spring, you're holding on for dear life to Hosni Mubarak. Obama's been schizophrenic on what he's going to do. I mean, they no, they held on to Mubarak until the last possible moment, and, and they completely misread the Arab... But Jeremy, Jeremy Scahill, are you saying that you think further American military presence in Iraq would have stopped ISIS's no. development? No. no, I don't think we should have gone into Iraq at all. I think the U.S. should have withdrawn and said we want to hit the complete reset. We're, we're going to do an assessment of the drone program, figure out who we killed. We're going to pay reparations to people in Iraq and other countries whose lives that we've destroyed. I mean, you, you want to know what I actually want to do? It's not realistic because people like me aren't allowed to be in political power in this country because we're not bankrolled by huge corporations. You're listening to the BBC World Service. This is Owen Bennett-Jones with News Hour Extra. 
extra and do stay with us as we continue this conversation in uh, the second half of the programme. And don't uh, forget to keep sending us your thoughts on the programme. You can email us at BBC News Hour Extra. That's all one word at gmail.com. Uh, you can tweet us at BBC NH Extra and you can follow us on the podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast, put uh, BBC News Hour Extra into your search engine and it will take you there. BBC News Hour Extra podcast. You're listening to the World Service of the BBC. You're listening to the World Service of the BBC. This is Owen Bennett-Jones with NewsHour Extra. We've got uh, a discussion of Obama's foreign policy with Professor Robert Singh here in London, Jeremy Scahill, author of Dirty Wars in New York. We've got Gideon Rose, editor of Foreign Affairs in New York, and also Kim Gattis, who has written a book uh, about Hillary Clinton. Now then, uh, you were talking about Obama and Iraq, and I I just want to move it on slightly to Afghanistan. There, there are troops in place when he leaves office almost certainly now, and that is not something he wanted to to, to happen. Uh, what do you make of that? Failure? Flexibility? Pragmatism? I don't know. Robert Singh? I think you can call it pragmatism at one level, but it's emblematic of, of what's happened elsewhere, which, as Gideon said, I mean, there are an awful lot of problems which are not America's making, and that Obama's been responsible for some more than others. The problem is, in a lot of cases, in fa- fact, I'd argue most cases, he's made them markedly worse in each instance. And Afghanistan's an example there. He was driven by this imperative to end the two wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, be the unbush, get re-elected in 2012, and have as his legacy being a peace president. But partly as a result of that and an extraordinarily politicised and centralised foreign policy process, partly as that result, we've actually seen America's position strategically dwindling, the Middle East more broadly. But, but again, what else could you... I mean, if the Americans still had 300,000 or however many it was, troops in Afghanistan, would they be in a better place? No, one's not necessary. I think the problem here is that there's always a binary position taken by Obama's defenders between either you support what he did in a kind of fatalist way, there was no alternative other than Bush's wars. There were middle grounds. There were middle grounds in terms of a much more committed and engaged political uh, involvement with Kabul, with Baghdad, and elsewhere. There was more of a middle ground if you went to, for example, Syria in terms of things like no-fly zones, getting rid of Assad's aircraft at the earliest stage with the Petraeus plan had and was backed by Hillary Clinton and Leon Panetta but vetoed by the president. There were a lot of things that could have been done earlier, but because they weren't done, that's what where we're left at the end of his administration with him doing these things in Afghanistan committing to keeping troops there through 2016 into 2017 and basically kicking the can down the road to his successor. Kim Gaddis? Yeah, I think Obama, as you know, Robert points out, wanted to be the president who ended wars. But by stubbornly sticking to that, no matter how circumstances changed, he's now involved in, in three which will last until he leaves, two which he hastened to get out of without proper preparation, and one which he tried to avoid, uh, avoid at a huge cost. There's a very telling anecdote from the UN General Assembly last year when the US had just started bombing the first ISIS targets inside Syria. He was taking a family photo with members, foreign ministers and his counterparts from the coalition at the UN just before the General Assembly was getting underway. And that morning he had um, the, the Emirates 
the Emiratis participating in the strikes, the Saudis were participating in the strikes, and he goes up to the stage and he's taking this family picture and he tells them, you guys know I didn't want to do this. I wanted to be the president who ended wars. And so it's this constant reluctance, this sort of, you know, half measures being dragged along the way. And there is something to be said for an American president who doesn't have the instant reflex to take America into war. But by trying to resist at every turn the minimal options that are presented to him because he fears the the mission creep, you end up in a position where you're left with only the worst options, like in Syria now, where he has to send special forces and he's having to you know deal with suddenly Russia being involved quite heavily in that war. This is Gideon. And I think everybody, again, is being somewhat unfair. The fact is the Middle East these days is utterly dysfunctional and every single strategy the United States has tried hasn't worked. In Iraq, the United States invaded and stayed and occupied and the result was a costly disaster. In Libya, it invaded but didn't stay and occupied. The result was a disaster. In Syria, it didn't do anything. The result was a costly disaster. In Yemen, it tried drones and diplomacy and negotiations. The result was a costly disaster. Nobody has any answer to the Middle East dysfunction. And so Obama is basically saying, fine, let me just sit this one out as much as I can and let it go on because I can't make it any better and I don't want to get trapped. And so the United States is wisely sitting this one out. If he had been doing the kind of things that you're all asking him to do, you'd be criticizing him in exactly the same way Jeremy no, and others have done I for being too much in. I think, I think with respect, Gideon, you're being far too generous. I mean, there's a kind of fatalism here that's, that's mm. basically the president of the United States and the most powerful nation in the world simply can't do anything in virtue of the fact that a couple of administrations, not least this one, have made a series of mistakes. In the Syrian case in particular, the point here is sitting it out has consequences not just for Syria, but for destabilizing its neighbors, for destabilizing Europe with a massive refugee crisis we haven't seen since the Second World War. And Putin and others are taking notice of all of these errors of sitting it out and exploiting yeah, it. Yeah, but I think, I think the point that Gideon Rose is making, Robert Singh, which you need to answer, is what, what else could have been done? As I said, from the, from the outset, at minimum, no one's talking about a panacea here, but at minimum, the refugee crisis, the destabilisation could have been mitigated somewhat by setting up no-fly no zones back in 2011-2012, by getting rid of Assad's aircraft, by also taking a more forward-leaning stance in relation to Putin's aggression in Crimea and Ukraine, suggesting that actually there are costs to expansionism and belligerence. Obama instead makes these fine speeches that rules must be binding, violations must be punished, words must mean something, but they don't. This entire discussion misses a key point, which is that Obama could have done something in Afghanistan. He could have pulled all U.S. troops out. There are no U.S. national security threats emanating from Afghanistan right now. In the case of Syria, it's not that Obama did nothing. We had the CIA on the ground there. We were schizophrenically running around trying to figure out who our friends could be on the ground. We were funneling weapons. We were using Qatar and Turkey as proxies. Let's not pretend like America is just sort of the outside concerned party that should do something on a humanitarian level. We were a part of exacerbating this conflict uh, from the very beginning. Well, like, the, this is Gideon. Like yep. most of the world discussion, discussions of, of world politics these days, we're vastly over-focusing on the Middle East. Latin America is essentially stable. Africa is in much better shape than it has been in generations. Europe 
Europe, at least Central and Western Europe, is stable and secure, although it's dysfunctional for its own reasons. Asia is relatively stable, and we're trying to contain China. The fact is that the Middle East is the one area of the world, the greater Middle East, that's really going backwards, but that's not the whole world. The world order is actually in better shape now than it was before. No, it is one of the fascinating things. He wanted to pivot to Asia. In some ways, he's pivoted to Asia, but... You know, any American president, it seems, even if they really want to move on from the Middle East, is extremely difficult for them to do so. We're, we're going to move on to Pakistan because we got an interview with uh, Asif Ali Zadari, president of Pakistan from 2008 <coughs> to 2013. During his time in office, there was the bin Laden killing. And uh, this is Obama on policy towards Pakistan starting back in 2009. In the past, we too often defined our relationship with Pakistan narrowly. And those days are over. Moving forward, we are committed to a partnership with Pakistan that is built on a foundation of mutual interest, mutual respect, and mutual trust. We will strengthen Pakistan's capacity to target those groups that threaten our countries and have made it clear that we cannot tolerate a safe haven for terrorists whose location is known and whose intentions are clear. My national security team, as we develop more information about the possibility that we had located bin Laden hiding within a compound deep inside Pakistan. Today, at my direction, the United States launched a targeted operation against that compound in Abbottabad, Pakistan. After a firefight, they killed Osama bin Laden and took custody. We stand united with people around the world who've been targeted by terrorists, from a school in Pakistan to the streets of Paris. We will continue to hunt down terrorists and dismantle their networks, and we reserve the right to act unilaterally as we have done relentlessly since I took office, to take out terrorists who pose a direct threat to us and our allies. So it is very, it is very interesting that, from, from mutual respect to unilateral action. And, you know, we often talk about Bush versus Obama, but there are obviously shifts within administrations, first term to second term and so on. Anyway, I discussed all this with Asif Ali Sadari, as I say, and asked him whether he saw, in his time, saw President Obama change. I think uh, there was a lot of... Uh miscommunicate between um, the intelligence services both ways. And then the Afghans have always been playing different games with different people. So it took him a little time to understand. Yeah, well, he came in not really understanding the complexities of South Asian politics? No, I think uh, he he inherited uh, Afghanistan and Iraq. So he, he had to learn on the job. Yeah, and that's interesting. And how did that reflect in his policy towards Pakistan? What did you notice was different? Pakistan, I think, fell between the two grinds of uh, the two administrations, between Bush leaving and Obama coming in, and then um, Obama taking two years to decide uh, which side to go as far as Pakistan was concerned, and we were suffering in between. Okay, so when you say he took two years, what was the issue he was facing at that time when he started? Basically, when Bush uh, Jr. was there and my wife had meetings with the State Department before coming into power, etc., we were promised a Marshall Plan for Pakistan, which uh, my friend uh, Holbrook had confirmed on the media internationally that Pakistan needs $50 billion to come up to a position where it can defend itself, where it can uh, fight against the uh, spread of the Taliban's. And that never seemed to happen because it was too many issues with the Congress, too many issues with people, fatigue, recession, etc., etc. So many things came in. 
to be filled somewhere in between. Right, and Obama never came up with that kind of money, although he did give a lot to Pakistan, didn't he? Not much, but he uh, tried to, but he couldn't. So, several billion? Several billions over the years. All right, and tell us about the, the killing of bin Laden, because that obviously was a massive moment. And did you have any advance warning from Obama that that was coming? Not at all. We had no idea. Nobody in our administration had any idea that it was coming or he was there. So how did the conversation afterwards go? The conversation was fair. I mean, he was the most wanted man in the world and they got him and we said, uh, fine, it is part of the world order and uh, UN resolution, we have to accept it. Right. So, I mean, was that a difficult conversation for you? It was a difficult conversation because it was way into Pakistan's territory. And if we had jointly got this victory, then the world would look at Pakistan in a different format. I was just wondering, over the years, you must have met many, many presidents. I mean, because you were were obviously married to Benazir Bhutto, who had these senior positions as well. How many presidents have you met, actually? That'll be the senior Bush, Clinton, and junior Bush, and Obama. Right. How does Obama compare? Obama is a leader of the new generation, so his oratory, his way of working is totally different from the old school of thought. Elected by the totally non-power groups of America and didn't have any machine behind him, so he's a man who made it himself. Okay, so what I'm going to ask you now is just to come up with a sentence, since you've yeah, a very unusual situation of having seen these people up close. So uh, I'm going to ask you just to give me a sentence on each of the American presidents you've known or dealt with. So what sentence would you use to describe Bush Sr.? Bush Sr. was a long-term player. He'd been in the part of the machinery for a long time. So he knew the ins and outs of the job. Bill Clinton? Bill Clinton was uh, the hero of the time. Who can not appreciate Bill Clinton? Just a smile would take the world away. Bush Jr.? Bush Jr. was a man of his word. If he shook his your hand and looked you into the eyes and said, yes, this will be done, it would be done. And Obama? Obama, thinking too much, taking too many people on consultations, committees, committees and committees. At the end of the day, everything gets lost in the job. There we are. Asif Ali Zadari, formerly president of Pakistan, speaking <laughs> on a line from Dubai. Uh, Kim Gassas, I know you've reported from Pakistan a bit. Uh, I'm not quite sure whether really he was just after a bigger aid package or, or what, what do you make of that? You know, I think this is a classic example of how countries around the world expect the US to do everything for them and are not uh, willing to do what it takes for themselves to, uh, to deliver. Uh, I mean, there was never a Marshall Plan for Pakistan. Um, there was... Uh, the Kerry-Luger bill, which promised a total of $7.5 billion to Pakistan. And it was the Pakistanis in 2009 who were up in arms against it because it came with strings attached. No surprise. America doesn't just disburse money for free in many cases. Uh, the condition was that they had to live up to certain standards and certify how the money was being spent. And they thought that this was an assault against their honor. The Marshall Plan that he's referring to was not an American plan. It was a f- Friends of a Democratic Pakistan conference, which was held in 2009. But that didn't really go anywhere. And so, you know, countries around the U.S., whether Jeremy uh, thinks that's a good thing or not, do want American help and involvement. But they often under uh, or they, they over 
overestimate American power and they don't deliver on their own promises to do better. Gideon Rose, I want to pick up on the point about committees, 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 and took too long to make decisions. Robert Gates, Defence Secretary of Obama, said it's the most deliberative president I've worked for. And of course, you can see that both ways. I mean, it's good to be thoughtful, but can he be too slow? What's your take on the decision-making process? Oh, I think uh, procedurally, I don't think the administration has been particularly good. Uh, I think they have indeed deliberated way too long. There's obviously been a major gap between words and actions. The president likes to give big, fancy speeches and then not follow them up. So he definitely loses style points on that. But I don't think that necessarily has has, uh, connected to the fundamental issue, which is there are a lot of problems out there that without good solutions, and the United States is finally uh, walking away a little bit rather than getting deeper involved. There's another Gates quote which I thought was quite interesting. Let me just read it to you. Uh, he's, He's critical of the White House, Obama White House. It's determination to take credit for everything good that happened while giving none to the people in the cabinet departments in the trenches who'd actually done the work offended Hillary Clinton as much as it did me. Uh, Kim Gattis, were you aware of that resentment? Hillary Clinton, while she was Secretary of State, made very sure that neither her nor anyone around her talked openly or even in private about any tension with the White House. It became clear after she left office that there had been many of these tensions. But even while she was Secretary of State, you could sort of read between uh, the lines, talking to some of her advisors. There was a lot of um, criticism of the way the president approached some problems, you know, this committee, committee, committee uh, approach, the big speeches that were not followed up with action, particularly, for example, uh, the Cairo speech. Can I put this to you, Robert Singh? Leon Panetta, I've got another quote, another insider. He says he lacks fire. Too often, in my view, the president relies on the logic of a law professor rather than the passion of a leader. And that's pretty much the Republican critique, isn't it, as well, that there's too much you know, the law professor charge is made and it's not decisive and that sort of thing. Is there anything in it? I think there's a lot in it, but I think there are two elements. I mean, some of the Republican critique is much more on the substance of the policy rather than the process. But it is distinctive. I mean, Panetta, Clinton herself said, you know, uh, don't do stupid stuff is not the basis, an organising basis for a great nation's foreign policy in her memoirs, which was a reference to Obama's lodestar of don't do stupid stuff. It's difficult to find an administration whose foreign policy principles, Gates, Panetta, Clinton, now Dennis Ross, have had so many criticisms of the way that decision-making... That's true, but it's also true that it's hard to find an administration that's had such a hostile Congress on foreign policy. Oh, I disagree. I disagree. I think actually, if you go back, you'll see that, that you know, the idea that, that politics ends at the water's edge is, is, is a myth. And polarisation has been going on for a number of years. If you looked at the opposition that Bill Clinton had from Republicans, that George W. Bush had from Democrats, this is nothing particularly new. And what's also interesting about it is the extent to which presidents can overcome it. If you look to the Iran deal, after all, one of the most significant arms control agreements with major strategic implications has gone through without the support of a majority in either chamber of Congress. So it can be done. Right, let's look ahead. Jeremy Scahill, uh, I'm getting the impression that you'll say we've got another year and a quarter of Obama. You're not expecting much change. No, and I mean, I, I, I do think, though, that um, Obama has had a, a much fiercer resistance from the Republicans based on the fact that he is black and based on the fact that uh, they fan the flames of Obama's a Muslim and he's a Mao Mao. And I, I, I don't think it's the same kind of challenges that Clinton or any other white president has faced. I mean, the racial dynamic here is a real one. Having said that, I, I think that Dick Cheney is like, you know, he's fly fishing out there in Wyoming, having a good chuckle over the fact that Obama has made it possible 
for the empire to continue to implement these brutal kinds of policies around the world. I mean, whoever comes after Obama, whether it's Republican or Democrat, is going to inherit uh, this sort of fierce defense of the so-called free market backed up by the iron fist of militarism. And Obama has cleaned up uh, the act so that the next Republican can take it much further. I mean, in, in many ways, Obama was the, the greatest friend to the uh, so-called national security policies of the Bush era. He's made it possible for all of them to continue on unabated. You're saying he's a front man for the same policies? No, I'm saying that he's a he's emblematic of how empire survives. He's he's the guy that sort of comes in and tries to bat clean up uh, for, you know, butchers like George W. Bush. And I, I think he's normalized assassination as a central component of U.S. policy and normalized this idea that the United States has a right to go into sovereign countries, to bomb countries around the world uh, with no regard for international law. Robert Singh. Oh, I simply don't agree with that. I, th- I think that that's that, a surprise. <laughs> indeed, I mean, I think it's 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 a viewpoint we're we're very familiar with that. There's simply no difference between between administrations. But I think if you look to to the qualities of alliances, if you look to circumstances on the ground, if you look to the geopolitical influence that say Russia and China and Iran have now compared to 2008, there's been a huge difference there. And I think. Um, you know, I'm not a defender of the Obama administration per se, but I think it's it's really unfair to characterise him as some kind of endorser of assassinations without any kind of legal basis. Well, the Trump program doesn't have a legal basis. Oh, actually, there is a legal basis to it, and I don't think I think it actually the BBC's Mark Urban has made the point. I mean, if you're talking about drones as war in a comparison to conventional war, that's about that's similar to making a comparison of saying buying a chocolate bar and buying a private jet are both instances of shopping. They're not. No, 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 no. But first of all, there's there is not really a clear legal structure. It's a, there's a secret parallel system where the president serves as emperor and presides over meetings about who will live and die around the world, including American citizens who haven't been charged with crimes. And, the, mean, and the United States Congress has the constitutional authority to intervene and change everything if it had the will to do so. It that, doesn't. I mean, I agree with you on that front. But the question is why? And the fact is, the U.S. Congress has refused to ever legislate the term assassination. Why? They don't want their hands to be uh, bloody. They leave it on the executive, and that's why this sort of extrajudicial program can endure. The Congress does not do its job of holding the executive branch in in check. Kim Gattas, you look at uh, Hillary Clinton closely. If she wins, will she change much? She will be more assertive in the way she projects American power. I mean, there is a discussion to be had about, you know, what Jeremy is discussing about American uh, imperialism. Uh, Are you for it? Are you against it? Uh, I think that from one president to another, there is a machine that somewhat stays the course. I think President Obama tried very hard to swing the pendulum back towards something more sane, more thoughtful than where he thought President Bush had gone to. His, the criticism he gets is that he swung too far the other side. But his vision, um, a lot of people will agree, is correct, that you need to find a way for America to be a world leader without being involved in everybody's petty fights because, you know, the Middle East, but also Afghanistan and Pakistan, they all want America to sort out their problems. And I think President Obama had the right vision, except that he hasn't found the way to implement it yet. How do you do this offshore balancing without getting involved in all these wars? I think Hillary Clinton's main criticism of President Obama was that he was not invested enough in projecting uh, American power, which is important in maintaining the perception that America is still a global leader. The, the tending to relationships is key 
in this time uh, and age where American uh, power is challenged at, at every corner of, of the world. And I think that is going to be a main difference with Hillary Clinton. She's assertive, but not necessarily hawkish. Gideon Rose, you, 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 you watch it very closely. Uh, as you look ahead, and I'm talking post-Obama now, how do you see the, the candidates and what difference they could make? So unlike Jeremy, I don't mind the empire. I just want to see it run competently and effectively. And in that case, I've been somewhat pleased with what Obama has done, uh, and especially his sort of refusal to try to get dragged too more deep, much deeply into new conflicts in the Middle East. I think that the the challenge for the next president will be to continue to stay out of stupid interventions uh, that are unnecessary, while at the same time rebuilding and reupholstering the liberal order uh, that has served the well very uh, served the world very well for several decades. Obama has done some good work laying the groundwork for this with the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the TTIP, the Transatlantic Trade Pact, doing things like signing uh, ASEAN's Treaty of Amity and Cooperation, holding the line in Ukraine and the South China Sea without getting into wars. And I think that the next president will hopefully build on that to restore the liberal order and uh, manage it properly, whether the candidates we have uh, are able to do that is an interesting question. Let me ask you to focus on that a bit. Yeah, on the Republican side, what difference would it make if the different people win? The Republicans are still very hawkish. As someone has said, they want to repudiate the Iraq war, but not the thinking that lay behind the Iraq war. That's a little bit scary. On the Democratic side, it's really hard to say about Hillary because we're in the primary season. She's a Clinton. She's a politician. And therefore, she's saying whatever she has to say to get elected, which means tacking left on some issues issues like trade and tacking right, at least rhetorically, on some issues like intervention to seem somewhat hawkish to the uh, to be acceptable to the middle. What she'll actually do, no one knows, but I would expect a continuation, broadly speaking, of Obama's policies. Robertson, can you take us through your analysis of the candidates and what they might do? Whether you have Hillary or whether you have a Republican in, in the White House from January 2017, we're in for a, a more forward-leaning, assertive, hawkish foreign policy. I just want to point out something that I I don't use the word hawkish when I describe Hillary Clinton because having seen her operate as Secretary of State and having seen how she evolved on the concept of American power and how to deploy the tools of American diplomacy, I think that word doesn't apply to her. I think she is assertive, but she doesn't have the reflex to go to war. If she had it in the past, she certainly does it anymore. And so I think there would be a difference between a Hillary Clinton president and a Republican president. And Jeremy's Cahill, just one last comment from you on, on as you look ahead post-Obama. Well, I think it's uh, it's sort of uh, emblematic of U.S. politics that Donald Trump was right on Iraq and Hillary Clinton was wrong. And I mean, Donald Trump is a is a certifiable lunatic when it comes to many issues, but he somehow got that one right. Unfortunately, and not for the right reasons uh, that Gideon would think, I, I largely agree with Gideon. I think that there's going to be a full continuation of the politics of empire moving forward. And, you know, it's, it's, it's really just going to boil down to whether, you know, we have uh, uh, Democrats selling their cruise missiles or Republicans selling their cruise missiles missiles as the solution to all of America's problems. There we are. A very interesting discussion. Thank you very much to all of you. Jeremy Scarhill and Gideon Rose in New York. We've had Kim Gattis in Washington and here in London, Professor Robert Singh. And uh, don't forget, as I mentioned earlier, there is a podcast. It comes out every week. We do one topic for one hour every week. BBC News Hour Extra into your search engine and you can subscribe and uh, get it every week so you won't miss it. And you can send us an email. That's BBC News Hour Extra, one word, at gmail.com. The Twitter is BBC NH Extra. And that's it for this edition of the programme. Thank you very much to our excellent panel. That's it for this week. From Owen Bennett Jones in London, goodbye.